0: Um, I got a lot to preach, so can I just start? We're in Exodus 17. Let me kind of recap for us where we've been. I got Moses' staff here, and I'm going to come back to the uh, to the map. Has anybody noticed we got a map of uh, uh, this? Yeah, and some of you are excited about that. That's great. I don't know why, but. Uh, I just want to remind you, we've been studying basically the last five or six chapters of the book of Exodus, starting with their emancipation from Egypt. That took place up here in a little place called Ramses, uh, when the Pharaoh said, get out of here. Ten plagues is enough. Go. And so uh, God, through Moses, leads the children of Israel. And if they had wanted to just take a direct route, they would have just kind of hugged the Mediterranean Sea and been up here in Canaan or the Promised Land in like two weeks, three tops. But that's not what God had in mind. If you've been following along, God tells Moses, let's go south. And he actually takes them probably somewhere in this region at the northern part of the Red Sea, and he, he has them settle on the beach. Maybe they're thinking, oh, cool, vacation. Uh, that's not the case at all. He has things to teach them. And so uh, Pharaoh decides, you know what, I, I liked having all those people as my slaves. He sends his army to go get them. And uh, if you were here for that week, uh, Israel, completely faithful through the whole thing, just believed that God would provide for them. Is anybody anybody here that week? The Now, Israel started this nasty habit of uh, completely going chicken little on God and freaking out. But God, uh, through Moses, uh, provides a way through the Red Sea. He parts the sea uh, for Israel, and Egypt is trapped in the sea. Uh, And then the story moves forward. Travis did a great job teaching us about what happened at Mara. Uh, uh, where the water was bitter but he made it sweet uh, and God provided for them a drink. Last week we talked about what happened in a place called Elam. They were hungry and anybody remember what happened? God made what? Rain from heaven? Bread or manna, rain from heaven. Uh, In both places, Israel whined and complained and today we get to see them do it. Again, because today, as they continue to move south, they're going to end up in this place in the southern tip of, of the Sinai Peninsula called Rephidim. Everybody say Rephidim. And Rephidim means resting place. So let's read in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, the story of what happened at Rephidim. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. Not our word sin, it's actually a proper name for this region. It's where we get Sinai, this wilderness of sin Uh, and they did it by stages so God led them day by day bit by bit as they continued to journey southward don't miss that in the opposite direction of where the promised land is God has lots to teach them so uh, he's taking them all the way uh, south pretty much as far as you can go without hitting the water in the Sinai Peninsula Uh, and and, uh, it was all according to the commandment of the Lord remember God revealed his presence to Israel during these years by uh, uh, being a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Anybody want to see the changeover of that? I, I, I was thinking that last night as I was falling asleep. How cool would that be? Like at dusk every night and at dawn every morning to see the fire turn to cloud and the cloud turn to fire? It would be like a sunset. Just closer. Anyway. Uh, but the Lord uh, is, is, it's called a theophany. He's, he's revealing himself in a, in a tangible a uh, seeable essence. He's saying here, follow this and I'll lead you. And so he's led them uh, where he's led them. And now he's led them to this place called Rephidim's. That means resting place. Uh, and, and here's the problem. It's in the desert. There's no Coke machine. There is nothing to drink for miles. Now we can assume that Israel back at Mara couple of weeks ago probably uh you know maybe a little bit longer from the time that they left there till now they had filled all their canisters or whatever they filled up for water uh their canteens and and they they'd walked all this way and and all of those containers were dry hmm ever been thirsty anybody I think it's a human thing right we get thirsty yeah uh, but have you ever been really thirsty Like if I don't drink soon, I'm going to die. Eleanor and I went uh, to North Georgia for a vacation earlier this year and we went down into Tallulah Gorge. It's this huge hole in the ground and it's a thousand steps all the way down the staircase. And then the worst part is it's a thousand steps back up. And normally uh, in the the heat of the North Georgia summer, it's kind of dangerous to take all those steps to exert that much energy without rehydrating. And so um, they've positioned all kinds of water fountains and, and places where you can fill up your canteen along those thousand steps. But guess what? In the age we live in, those were turned off for the sake of COVID and us not passing germs. And so like in a ridiculous number of signs at the opening of the trail said, hey, do you have water? Because if you get down here and you don't have it, you might not be coming back up, apart from the aid of an EMT. Uh, that was one of the only times in my memory as a person living in you know the day and age that we live in that I was like, oh, water's really important. We gotta have this, right? Uh, and so we loaded up for the journey. But here in the uh, in the desert, where Israel finds themselves in this age where there's no pipes, no wells uh, within miles. Uh, Uh, Thirst was at a different level. So, once again, Israel finds themselves at a hard place. And once again, God for Israel will be the rock at a hard place. You see what I did there? Yeah. Anybody ever felt like you've been in between a rock and a hard place? Yeah, for too many of us, it's a far uh, too um, familiar experience. It happens far too often. But here's what we've learned through the story of uh, Israel so far in the desert, and we'll continue to learn as they move on in their history. Um, God's there. God provides. Uh, He is a good, good father. Uh, In the uh, Gospels, um, we're asked, hey, if if a human father, when his son asks him for bread, gives him bread, how much more will our heavenly father give us? He's a good father, a provider, and Once again, in this situation, he's going to provide. It's not because Israel aces their test. Don't don't read that at all. In fact, Israel fails miserably. Because like uh, us, Israel, when they find themselves in hard places, tends to make really bad choices. Has anybody been there? Uh, Zigged when you should have zagged? Uh, A circumstance arose and you're like, you know what? I'm going to take this one and you start handling it in your own way over and over again. Uh, unbelievably, really. I mean, if you think about it, they've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, they've already been thirsty once, right? And God took bitter water and made it clean to drink. Uh, just last chapter, they were starving and God started raining bread down from heaven. You'd think that'd be enough for these guys. That'd be Okay, we're thirsty, but the God who's done all that, the God whose presence is manifested to us in this cloud, the God who's done time after time everything that we've needed him to do so that we could be free, he's probably going to take care of the thirsty thing. You'd think they'd think that. They do not. And before we're too quick to judge, we do the same thing. Because like Israel, when we get to hard places, a lot of times our flesh, our sinful side, the old man kicks in and we start doing all these crazy things in our relationship with God. The first thing Israel does, uh, this bad choice that they make in their hard place, is they start demanding of God instead of asking him for what they need. Look what it says in verse 2. It says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses. This is a word that like, is ramped up from grumbled, which is what they've been doing. This is like uh, you know, uh, vociferous. This is like... Grab Moses by the shoulders and be like, give me water now. That's that kind of thing. What is wrong with you, Moses? Once again, you've led us deeper into the desert and we've got nothing to drink. I demand. Anybody ever been in that, uh, you know, uh, restaurant where someone's not getting the service that they want and they say, I demand to see the manager. (laughs) Like they're super special, you know. My eggs are too runny. Where's your manager? That's what Israel's doing. This is this is uncomfortable for us. Give us water to drink. No, please. Certainly no, thank you. They are suffering from a horrible case of spiritual amnesia. They've forgotten everything that God has provided. And they are here in this current circumstance, forest for the trees. Can't see beyond it. They are living in me-town, population one. <clears throat> and it's causing them to miserably fail this test that God has led them into. They thought they deserved, so they demanded. It's the same problem we see exhibited over and over in our our Bibles. Uh, Later on in the New Testament, a guy named James, uh, the brother of Jesus Uh, He was the leader at the church in Jerusalem. He writes this incredible letter to uh, uh, those who are in the church scattered abroad. And as he's writing to his recipients, he, in chapter two, tells them, hey guys, make sure that you don't show favoritism to anybody. Don't let envy come in and and corrupt what's happening in the body of Christ. Be humble, treat everybody equally. But he picks up that same idea in chapter four where he writes this about uh, the kind of effects that being a demander someone who deserves can bring about in somebody's life. Look what it says in verse one. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He doesn't tell us what they were quarreling and fighting about. Maybe it was the envy stuff in chapter two. But he says, why are you guys so much at odds? What's at the middle of that? He says, well, is it not this, that your passions are at war against you? That word passions is the Greek word hedone. Everybody say hedone. It's from whence we get the word hedonism uh hedonism is this club down in jamaica apparently i've heard of it but uh but it's also this uh, belief or this mindset that says i must feed me everything that i want i will be governed by my passions my my incline, my thirsts oh wait a minute now we're tying in with what's happening in exodus 17 i'll be ruled by my thirst he says, is it not this that your, your passions or your thirsts are at war within you? So here, here's the deal. Spiritually speaking, if you're unaware of, of the Christian mindset or the Christian picture of a person, um, before we meet Jesus Christ, we are, we are just given over to our sin. We are by nature enemies of God, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we got nothing in terms of life with him or or a part of him. But once we, by faith, receive Christ, we are, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, made into new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become? Yeah, isn't that great? Who's happy for that? Anybody happy for that? But here's the deal. We still live in a world where we remember what life was like without him. We still wrestle against the sins that could pull us away from him. So the old man, it's like a boxing ring exists in your soul. And there's the old man on this side and the new man on this side. And they are constantly duking it out. And there are times where we know that God's got us, that he will provide for us, that he is faithful and deserves our trust. And yet we will still turn towards our passions, our thirsts. Hmm. In doing so, make demands of our God. We'll also, in doing so, create rifts in our relationships. So if you've ever had a a fight with your spouse or an argument with your parents, if you've ever, um, you know, been at odds at any time, the old man's winning with somebody in that situation. Usually both of you, but absolutely one of you. Because all you're doing is speaking from your passions, your thirst, your desires, your deserves. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want, I want, I want. James goes on and he says, you desire. You have these passions, but you don't have. And so what do you do? You murder. Time out. Wait a minute. James is writing a bunch of murderers. There seems to be like, you know, probably some greater needs that we need to address in their lives. Are, is he saying that, the, that, that you know, they get in these situations where they actually have a disagreement you know, in traffic as they're leaving church and someone gets out of his car and, and you know, ends the person who got in their way? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying literal murder. He's actually probably drawing on the analogy that Jesus made about murder in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what Jesus said? You, you've heard it said that you shall not kill, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you call someone a fool, if you say, raka, to someone, it's calling them a fool. If you, if you verbally malign someone, it's as if you've killed that person. Does that happen in your arguments? Any name calling when you get mad at somebody else? He says, you know why you're doing that? It's because you don't have what you want. You're not getting what you deserve or in your mind think you deserve from that person. And so here comes the invectives. Here comes the, here comes the, I'm killing you with my words. He says you covet and you cannot obtain anybody had that thing that's just beyond your reach that make you crazy no matter how you stretch last yesterday I was putting in uh, some globes on some ceiling fans of my daughter's um, house and uh, apartment and the, the chair I was standing on I couldn't reach it far enough so I got the stool that was like a foot and a half higher but then I was too high my head was against it. anybody been in this situation what I needed was called a step ladder we didn't have one it was so frustrating because I couldn't, you know, dexterity betrayed me. I couldn't get the nut to screw on that I needed to screw on. And it's frustrating when things are out of your reach is my point. Is anybody with me? And it's frustrating for us when we think we deserve, when we think we're entitled, and it's beyond our reach, whatever that is. So you covet and you can't have the team. So, so your only, uh, re- you know, your resultant you know, choice then is to fight in a quarrel. Take it out on someone but then he goes on and he says this. He says, guys, you, you, you don't have because you don't ask. This isn't, this isn't about gimme, gimme, gimme. This is about, hey, Father, here's the situation. I trust you to know what's best for me. So give me this day my daily bread. Give me what I need. Give me what you know that I need. And I'll trust you for it through any circumstance I face. You have not because you ask not. And the people here in this, reading this, are like, James, we ask God all the time to provide our wants, to give us our every desire, and he never does. He covers that in the next verse. Well, if you have asked and you have not received, perhaps it's because you've asked wrongly with the wrong motives so that you can have a bunch of things from God so that you can use them to please your passions, your hedone, your thirsts and flesh. God's not going to give you that. God's not going to provide for you the things that will lead you further from him. Are you kidding? That's not how this works. Later on, he says this. Therefore, it says, as he quotes the Old Testament, God opposes the proud, those who come to him demanding. But he gives grace to the humble. And so what should we do? He says this in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That means this. Hupotasso. Put yourself beneath. Submit yourself to God say so in your life. Humbly surrender your demands and desires and just trust him in any situation. When you do this, you'll be resisting the devil and the devil will flee you. Does anybody wish that maybe Eve had made that choice? Resist the devil and make him flee? No? How did, how did Satan get Eve offsides? You know what? You'll have more. This will fulfill your hedone your passions to be just like God. Hmm. So the first mistake they made is they got all demanding. They shifted into me mode and they told God through Moses, give us water now. The second mess up they did was this. They defied God's appointed one. Look what it says in verse three. It says, uh, but the people thirsted there for water. I already got that. And people grumbled against Moses and said this. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Answer. To kill us. That's why you brought us out of Egypt. Thanks a lot, Mo. You brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with what? Thirst. We're going to die here because we don't have enough water. Now, this is a common refrain with Israel. Remember back at the Red Sea? This is what they said. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to the Red Sea to die? Last week when we talked about manna, Oh, I wish I was still a slave. This is, I'm paraphrasing, but they said this. I wish I was still a slave. How dumb are the Israelites? Answer, really dumb. I wish I was still a slave, but they had this revisionist history. At least when I was a slave, I had pots of meat and bread that I couldn't even, you know, finish. I mean, I had bread beyond what I could feed myself. It would be better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to be out here and not have food. (laughs) Here again, Moses. They go all sandlot. Anybody seen that movie? You're killing me, smalls. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're killing me, Moses. You're killing us. You brought me and my wife and my kids and all the cows, which kind of makes you wonder didn't they have like animals to eat instead of manna? But we can talk about that some other time. Anyway. <clears throat> but it still it doesn't keep them from complaining. Now, listen, the complaining is going to get so bad that apparently they're going to start talking about hey, if we're going to die, you know who's going to die first? Moses. Because then God uh, and Moses have a conversation in verse 4. Look what it says. So Moses cried to God. What am I going to do? You know, speaking of Chicken Little. "Ah, What shall I do? What shall I do? They are almost ready. Interesting, uh, the phrase he uses. To what? Anybody want to guess how God's going to bring water to these guys? Through a rock. Yeah. Wait for it. But Moses is first concerned about stones of another kind. They're going to throw rocks at me until I'm dead, God. These guys are murderous. Like, it's not just you're killing me, Smalls, you know, metaphorically. They're going to kill me. This has gotten bad. In all of this, um, Israel is coming against Moses, whom he's just obeying God. He's just going where the cloud and the fire leads. He's just taking them where God has led them. And yet... Uh, everybody needs, in a, in a hard place, a finger. They, they want to point the finger somewhere, right? Uh, this isn't our fault. This isn't, you know, this is obviously your fault. And the one who's leading you, it's, it's his fault. And, and so, uh, you know what we're going to do? Uh, we're just going to end you before we die ourselves. Now, the last thing that they do in this bad place is the worst thing. And the one that we're most prone to. Uh, they doubted God's power and plan. Skip over the next couple verses and go to verse 7. Moses, uh, in the story of, of the Exodus, um, is given over to renaming places. They, uh, they landed at this spot, and its an, original name was Rafidim, which means resting place. But Moses says, that's not what we're going to call it anymore. He gets done this whole situation, and he says, uh, we're going to call this place Masa and Meribah. Masa means testing in Hebrew. Meribah means uh, quarreling. Uh, Because the quarreling of the people of Israel with Moses and ultimately with God uh, is what we'll remember about this place. Uh, The testing of the Lord by Israel who asked this question of their God. Is the Lord among us or not? Are you serious? (laughs) Does anybody ever read your Bible and be like, really? I picture these guys probably asking this question in the midst of their gathering of some bread that had rained down from heaven the night before. In the shadow of a huge pillar of cloud that does not naturally occur in the world. That is the very essence and manifestation of the God who has led them out of slavery where they were powerless to free themselves and to this point in their history. Does everybody pick up the complete idiocy of this claim of Israel to say, is God here or not? And I'm so glad that we in this age in America do not suffer from this. That we never question the existence of God or his presence in our lives. Is everybody picking up the sarcasm there? Because what we'll do is we'll come to some circumstance, some discomfort, some place where we thirst. And we'll say, well, God, I don't even know if you care anymore. As we push the button on our key fob, that automatically starts our truck. And as we get into this air-conditioned vehicle that God has given us don't get it twisted. You didn't earn it. So I did. I went to work. The only reason you exist can work and have what you have is the grace of an almighty God. Is everybody with me? So you get in your air-conditioned truck, and you continue to complain. I can't believe you're making this hard on me, God. I can't believe I'm having to go through this. As you pull up to the three-car garage that houses your truck that you can turn on with a piece of plastic, and you go into a house with a bunch of stuff that you don't really need, but it's filled up there, and you got a whole uh, you know, uh, uh, place on 60 where you keep the stuff that can't fit in your house, and, and you sit there at the table where you stuff your face with food that you're eventually going to throw the leftovers out of because there's no room in the fridge anymore because you went to Costco yesterday. And you sit there and you complain and whine in the midst of God's plenty and provision. America, Christians, pull your head out please. And understand that everything that you have is given you By a gracious and loving God. And that everything that you face in life, God's there. And even if he disappoints you with the initial returns on your prayers, if he is withholding some solution from your life, he knows better than us. And he's providing for us, even as we feel like he isn't. Hmm. You know what's behind this doubting and this defying and this uh, demanding? I've already talked about it a little bit from James. It's this hedone, these passions inside of us. But like uh, Darnish had talked about earlier as we were saying, what these passions do is they skew our vision. They, they make us see things that aren't there and they lead us away from God instead of towards him. You know, it, it's really important that you see things clearly. Can we all agree how important that is in life? It can lead to all kinds of miscues and missteps. If you get the, you know, um, the wrong number and an address, you're going to end up in a completely different place. If you, if you come down, there's a light down here at the end of uh, Kingsway uh, across 60. I think it turns into Brian. There's a light at Brian and Lithia Parkway, or Lithia Pinecrest. And, and uh, as, as Lithia's going this way and Brian's going this way, there's a light that is green for the, north-south traffic, and then there's an arrow. There's another light right next to the light that's for the north-south traffic. There's a a set of arrows, red, yellow, and green, for the turn that will take you down Lithia Pinecrest. And I can neither confirm nor deny this, but if you're a motorist who maybe is looking at his phone uh, at that intersection, and you pull up in the turn lane to go left on the Lithia Pinecrest, but you see the green light for the go straight down Bryan, you may think that you have the green light to go. And you may turn into traffic, oncoming traffic, who may have to lock up their brakes and uh, try to avoid you. And then you may feel real stupid. I, I don't know who this would be, but you may feel real stupid uh, because you've looked at you, you'll look up and you'll be in the in the moment you'll be incredulous. How could that person not see me coming? And um, and you'll be like, oh, I had the red arrow. My bad. Yeah, I think we do that with God all the time. We get looking at the wrong lights, at the wrong signals. We, we, we head in directions we're never meant to go because we're just not seeing him correctly. It, it happens with the Israelites and with us in our circumstances. They thought they were in trouble, but they were really right where God wanted them. They thought they needed to demand, and all they really needed to do was trust. They had this, this, uh, this incorrect picture of of who they were, I was talking with uh, our youth pastor Shane Jury this week about this text, and he just—he was so good to bring this out. It's just we get this false sense of self-value when we start to demand of God and, and doubt God and, and and defy those that He's appointed to our lives. We we just think we have this elevated idea of who we are that we're we're something, like it says in Galatians six three. We think we're something when we're nothing, and that leads to our ruin. But we're just looking at the wrong things. We come to God in these hard places and we have this completely erroneous picture of who he is. He's not here. He's not good. He can't deliver and rescue me. Hmm. Their fear, their thirst, their discomfort, they all are derived from this skewed view. That's why I, I love... Um, football dramas on television, huh? There's this old TV show called Friday Night Lights, and there was this pep talk that the coach would give before every big game in, in one of the episodes, and he would finish that pep talk always with this phrase. He would say, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, and then they'd run out onto the field and cue the soundtrack, whatever. I remember hearing that for the first time being like, that's a good, that's a good, that's a good, you know, sports speech. That's, that's pretty good. But it's an even better church speech. It's, it's spiritual because what it captures for us is the message of scripture. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Have clear eyes. Don't be looking at the wrong signals. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Have full hearts, not half hearts. Not hard hearts. Have full hearts, full of a confidence born of a faith, an unshaking, unwavering faith in the power of God to deliver in any situation. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Now, that's the sad stuff. Let me get you to the happy stuff. Verses five and six reveal that to us. And these these verses will show to us that God is always our rock when we arrive at hard places. Look at what it says in verse uh, five. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Really interesting here. God doesn't say uh, or, or come down in this situation where Israel's mad at Moses as Moses is freaking out. There's no like there, there moment, right? There's no words of, hey, it's gonna be okay, buddy. Let's go, I got gotcha. you. He just comes in like a father comes into a situation that's got off the rails at his house where kids are yelling and screaming at each other. Anybody ever done this as a dad? All right, here's a deal. You there, you there. No more talking. And you just kind of direct that's what God does in this situation. Not a lot of psychology. <laughs> he just comes in and says, "All right, Mo, here's the deal. Pick up your stick. We're going to get to that. And just start walking. I want you to grab the elders of Israel and take them with you." I don't have time to suss this all out, but basically what Israel has done is they put God on trial. They've doubted his goodness. Doubted his power. They've said You aren't able. Are you even with us? And God says, all right, let me vindicate myself and show you just who I really am. Take the the elders, bring a jury. Bring a jury so that they can, you know, attest to what is about to happen. So he says, take in your hand the staff that you used to strike the Nile. We'll come back to that in a second. And, And go. And then... It's just not a lot of details. Anybody ever read the Bible and been like, really, that's it? Because all we got is one more verse. It says in verse 6, and behold, I will stand before you. Read lots of things this week about what that might have meant. My, my, my personal um, understanding is that probably the cloud moved. Like the, the, the very essence of God says, hey, I'm going to go up to where you're going to do this and, and you'll see me there. It'll, it'll be a sign of where you're supposed to stop but I'll be right there. I know the question that people have is, am I here? Well, I'm gonna be right there. I'll go before you on the rock at Horeb. Where have I read that before? Does anybody remember way back in the beginning when we started the book of Exodus? Moses is just watching some sheep for his father-in-law. He's just hanging out in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula and a burning bush comes into view. And do you know where that was? Horeb, remember what he said in verse 12 of chapter three? If you don't, I'll tell you. He said to Moses, hey Mo, you're gonna go get my children out of Egypt and I'll meet you right back here. And so there they are. And in the same place where God started the story, in the same place where God's provision began, one more time, his provision is given to Israel. Here at the Mount of Horeb, he says, hey, strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and that's it everybody filled their canteens no like you know how movies have like the you know the crescendo of the story and then the last five minutes or here's what happened next nothing that's it just they like God did it again Despite their complaints, their demands, and their defiance, and despite their their doubting of him, he just says, "Yeah, here you go." Now, can you go forward in Scripture with me for a second? In the New Testament, we're introduced to a, another rock. In Psalm ninety-five, he's referred to as the rock of our salvation. Uh, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus finishes. Uh, five, six, and seven, he finishes his sermon on the mountain. He says to everybody who's listening, hey, if you build your house, your life on these things, it's like building your house on a rock and, and your life will stand firm. But if you build on anything else, it'll be like building on sand and it'll go flat. Anybody remember that? Jesus is already beginning to allude to himself as the rock of their salvation. little bit later in Matthew 21 he quotes the Old Testament he says the stone that has been rejected will become the cornerstone Peter picks that up and he he makes it very clear that Jesus was talking about himself he's the rock and Paul in first Corinthians 10 this is your assignment as you leave. read the first five verses of first Corinthians 10 it's the story of Exodus and it concludes with this and Moses tapped the rock, and the rock was always with Israel. And the rock, it says this word for word the rock was Jesus. So even in Exodus, Jesus, is, according to Paul, is in the story. Is everybody with me? Jesus is our rock? Yeah. But our rock, Jesus, had to go to another rock, not Horeb, Golgotha. And he had to climb this hill and allow himself to be nailed to a cross. And this incredible thing happened. It's the same thing that happened at Meribah and Massah. Meribah and Masa, those aren't happy names. Testing and quarreling, this isn't a happy place. In fact, if you read the rest of the book of Exodus, you're gonna find out that that generation of Israelites were not permitted to promise, or into the promised land because they had failed the test at Meribah and Masa. Moses included, Numbers 27. It's a place of judgment. In addition to be in a place of grace. Remember how God described the stick, the staff? He says, Moses, take the staff that you put in the Nile. That was the first plague in the 10 plagues. Remember what happened when Moses put his stick in the Nile? The water turned from water to what? Blood. It was a judgment against Egypt. The first of the 10. And so here at Meribah, there's judgment in addition to grace. Fast forward to Golgotha, there is judgment as God's wrath is poured out on his son. And your sins and my sins are bore by him. And he pays the penalty, the price, for what we rightfully deserve. But in doing so, he releases the most amazing grace that has ever been given. Because by faith in this rock, who is our salvation, you and I can be born again to a new life with Him, free from sin. Ah, the play, the playback is awesome between Exodus and our story. And so here's my question as we close: <laughs> If you're not at a hard place, they're coming. <laughs> if You haven't experienced them before, um, you will soon. And in every hard place we have choices. Don't make the wrong ones. Don't come to the hard places of your life and be demanding of God, defying of those he sends to your life, doubting in him and his power and his plan. Instead, trust him, follow him, wait on him. We used to sing this song. I didn't talk about it in the first service, but you get the bonus content. We used to sing this song when I was growing up in church. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. Anybody remember that one? You remember the verse? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The second verse says this. When darkness veils his lovely face, when the bad times come, when the hard places arrive, when darkness veils his lovely, lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Is that your confidence today? Is Jesus at the center of it all? I pray he is. We're going to sing that song to close. And as you've been listening to me, maybe as you were singing earlier, if you're kind of adrift, in doubt, worried because COVID, worried because election, worried because everything, just remember, God's got us. And make Jesus the center of your all. Can we just be quiet for a second and pray that before Darnisha leads us to sing? Let's pray for Jesus to be the center of it all.